The reading this morning can be found on page 1687. It's from St. John's Gospel, chapter 21, starting at the first verse. Jesus and the Miraculous Catch of Fish. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals. There were fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them. And he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, and uh, thank you, Tim, for reading. Now, I suggest you don't come too close to me because to try and get into the spirit of this reading, I had kippers for breakfast. (laughs) But I I didn't bother to get the barbecue out. So, in an effort to have mirth, mirth before righteousness, I thought I'd get over a few of my favorite fish jokes. (laughs) So, how many fishermen does it take to change a light bulb? It's so, one, but you should have seen the size of the bulb. <laughs> so what's the difference between a fish and a piano? Yeah, can't tune a fish. Yes, very good. And I, I like this uh, one for the ladies. Uh, a, a wise lady once said, cook a man a fish and you feed him for a day, but teach a man to fish and you get rid of him for the whole weekend. LAUGHTER 
And my favorite is, what's the fastest fish in the water? A motor pike. <laughs> so having dispensed with all that frivolity, let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you provide us with help and guidance. We pray now that you would illuminate your scriptures and speak your words to us. And I pray if these words are from you, they would bless us all. And if any are not from you, they would be discarded and forgotten. We ask this in your name. Amen. So we're nearly there. We're almost at the end of our long study through John's Gospel. And I calculate this is part 30. So let's see what blessings we've still got in store from this reading this morning. And I hope you will agree with me that St. John's Gospel is a gift that keeps on giving. Now I notice that this passage starts with an afterwards. So if you haven't followed all 30, uh, 29 other lessons, just a quick recap from uh, like Mike's excellent sermon last week, you need to know that we're in the period between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension to heaven. Now actually, it takes a bit of investigation to go through all the Gospels to get all the events in order to try and figure out what's been going on. And I interpret it a bit like this, that first we have the glorious Easter Day events, the excitement of the empty tomb and the appearances of Jesus, including Luke's account of the road to Emmaus. Next, we have Jesus appearing to his disciples in Jerusalem, where if we look in Matthew's gospel, they're instructed to go to Galilee. And this is also confirmed by an angel. So off they dutifully go, heading north, waiting further instructions. So there's no indication precisely how quickly that they left Jerusalem. Maybe if they did that within a few days of Easter, they might have beaten the crowds returning from the Passover festival. But there are 40 days between Easter and Ascension days. So that puts a lot of time in between those two events. And so when they get to Galilee, they're waiting to meet Jesus. So they might have been kicking around for quite a while, effectively on some sort of furlough or, or their gap month, perhaps. And they probably hadn't twigged that this was a brief period before they would get their great commission and empowering. Of course, we're viewing this with hindsight but they were about to embark on starting the worldwide church as we know it today. Now, you might want to reflect on the difference between what the disciples did and achieve with and without the coming of the Holy Spirit. We see a more focused waiting in Acts chapter 1 after Jesus' ascension. In verse 14, it says... They all join together constantly in prayer. And we see also that they studied the scriptures. And through interpreting the word of God, they determined that the 12th apostle needed to be replaced. So what a difference then after that when the Holy Spirit came upon them and the whole 
church exploded throughout the world. The Gospels, as I read them, only suggest that Jesus occasionally appeared to his disciples after Easter. And there's very little content about what he instructed them at this point. In contrast to all the the teachings that we get over the previous three years before Calvary. The key turning point came 10 days after the ascension, yet more commanded waiting when the pouring of the Holy Spirit came out, which was like their apostolic graduation. Shouldn't that make us keen to plead for the empowering of the Holy Spirit, a transforming from awakening from awaiting to awakening. Now I've noticed for some time that the Bible gives a vague indication about what Jesus was doing in the intervening time between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. In 1 Peter chapters 3 and 4, it talks about the resurrected Jesus making proclamations to the imprisoned spirits and preaching to the dead so that they might be judged. And I noticed this morning we, we sang about that in the last song, believe it or not. So. But I've got no idea what Jesus was doing in most of the 40 days when he wasn't with the disciples. If anybody knows, please let me know. <laughs> I would be interested to see what people have pondered on this. But, I, but it, it, it might be that his guidance... He was teaching disciples disciples, that it wasn't going to be a 24-7 presence and that they needed to be active in the in-between times. We can't stay on the mountaintop experiences forever. So back to the passage. I get the impression that Simon Peter was not someone that could sit still. So when he said, I'm going fishing... I can imagine that he'd been pacing up and down where they were staying. Perhaps just before he told the disciples, I can't stand all this waiting around. I'm going fishing. Now some commentators take the disciples to task over this all-night fishing trip, accusing them of a lack of faith and staying power and going back to their previous occupation. Were they abandoning their new vocation? Personally, I don't think that was the case. I mean, what do you do when you don't receive any direction from the Lord? One of my favourite passages in Isaiah is in chapter 30, where it says, Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, This is the way walk in it and I interpret that as the case for you have to be moving forward before the Lord tells you to go one way or the other and in the military you should always obey the last order which for the disciples was go to Galilee which they did and wait which they also did so they were certainly in the right place and notice that Jesus didn't admonish them and ask them why they, they were, he'd caught them fishing, or rather attempting to fish, while they were catching nothing. In fact, 
He fixed their lack of achievement in typical Jesus fashion with abundance. I note that this breakfast barbecue bookends John's gospel because in chapter two, we see the wedding breakfast at Canaan. So also a great abundance in what Jesus was doing. Now, I think if they'd have been serious about going back to their profession of fishing, then why did three or four fishermen take with them probably four who weren't fishermen? We don't learn what the others were doing instead of fishing. I don't know, sorting out emails, watching daytime TV, reading the Jerusalem Times, or making banana bread, whatever the people do nowadays. Now, if anything that was going to make Peter more despondent was not catching any fish. And to make it even worse, someone on the shore called out, literally, lads, haven't you got any fish? The NIV translation says friends, but the word used is better rendered as children and is usually used in context for very young children. To make it even more annoying, this onshore observer now suggests they were fishing off the wrong side of the boat. Peter was quite restrained in following this advice and not telling this bystander to mind his own business. It seems to me incredible that a massive shoal of fish were parked a few metres to the right of where they were dropping their nets. Once again, we learn that following Jesus' advice bears much fruit, or in this case, fish. Such an amazing result was probably a giveaway for Peter. I wonder if he recalled the start of his experience with Jesus as recorded in Luke's gospel in chapter 5, where Jesus pointed out where to drop the nets after a fruitless night's fishing. Although in this account, it's John that figures out it was the Lord first. And modestly, as a gospel writer, he doesn't mention himself by name. I wonder if we can learn to recognise God's hand in the events of our lives. So we have the impatient Peter who does a hundred yard front crawl to be reunited with Jesus for breakfast. The other disciples dragging the nets with all those fish behind. Now, if you look at various commentaries, there's been a lot of head scratching and theories about the precise number of fish, 153. And not just fish, they're big fish too. Now, I won't regale you with some of the bizarre mathematical implications of that number or the art of gematria, which, if you're not aware of, is a method of translating numbers into words. What startles me is the fact that somebody took the trouble to count them. <laughs> Personally, I, I think it merely shows that it was a big catch and that the detail betrays a first-hand witness account of what was going on. In John's later book, his Revelation, we have the intriguing mention of 666. But there, he specifically says 
that this calls for wise interpretation, which isn't said here. So I think we should move swiftly on and not get tied up with numerology. Now, following this, there's another piece of intrigue where it mentions that none of his disciples dared ask him, who are you? However, it clearly says that they did know who he was. So maybe the issue here is more to do with a deeper question of what his status was now. Jesus has many titles that we should acknowledge. King of Kings, Redeemer, Friend, Bride, Lion of Judah, God with us. They'd experienced three years of him while he was fully human. Now he was resurrected. What physical constraints held him back? As Matt mentioned at Easter, he was able to walk through locked doors. And we get to see later on in Acts 12, Peter needed angels to open prison gates or even a slow servant girl to open the door to the room that they, where they were praying. The resurrected Jesus didn't need to bother with, to open any doors. <clears throat> the door he waits outside is the door to your heart. And I'm reminded of that famous picture by Holman Hunt, which is, reflects the, the words of Revelation chapter 3, where the door has no outside handle. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus needs to open the door. You need to open the door and let Jesus in, into your life. And there we must leave it till next week in our final episode, in our journey through John's Gospel, which is where we find out what is discussed over that breakfast meal. So just to conclude some points to ponder on for the week ahead and especially for those following in home groups dare you ask to Jesus who are you and if you find out he's your saviour and your God then how does that impact your life and I guess relevant for the moment as a church we must reflect on the lessons here of expectant waiting for what God leads us to do and to be. But perhaps today's passage is reminding us that we should wait for his specific direction, but that waiting doesn't suggest a period of inactivity like bus stop Christians. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we crave your guidance. We seek your presence. We welcome your Holy Spirit. Help us to patiently wait on your word. Help us to find peace in your perfect timing. We know you can change our emptiness in more, into more blessings than we can deal with or when we are casting our nets in the wrong place. Call out to us and guide us into your perfect paths. And now in a few moments of quiet reflection, maybe we can ask God for his direction 
especially if we feel we lack his guidance. Or maybe redirection if we're told we're fishing in the wrong place. Or request the anointing of the Holy Spirit to serve him better. And for those who haven't dared act to acknowledge Jesus as your God, King and Saviour, to open the door of your heart and let the King in. So let us pause for a moment of personal prayer. <clears throat>